Science Friday is supported by Progressive. Now, most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, we'll discuss the Dino docuseries Prehistoric Planet. It comes out next week on Apple TV+. But first, every coastline has its birds. And where there are birds, there is, of course, bird poop. And if you live near a beach, you know this well. Whether ducking what may fall from a flying gull or observing the distinctive white color on those offshore rocks, this bird poop, or guano, White gold, as it was once called, was used by people for millennia to fertilize crops. That's because it's rich in nitrogen and phosphorus, key nutrients for plant growth. And seabirds leave it, well, everywhere, but especially in the places where they build nesting colonies during the breeding season. Seabirds continue to shape and potentially enrich their ecosystems on coastlines and islands around the world. So what happens if the seabirds are at risk of extinction? Here with more about what we know about the important role of seabird guano and what we still need to know are my guests, Megan Grant, Ph.D. candidate at the University of Tasmania and researcher at the Adrift Lab in Australia, and Dr. Jennifer Lavers, senior lecturer in marine sciences, also at the Adrift Lab. Welcome both of you to Science Friday. Hello. Uh, Thank you for having us, Ira. Nice to have you. Megan, why did you decide to research seabird guano in the first place? (laughs) Um, I I suppose it's not the, you know, the the sexy topic, but I think it's really interesting because seabirds are so integral to terrestrial environments. It's quite unique in that they move nutrients from the marine environment to terrestrial environments. And that form of movement doesn't happen very often. Most of the nutrients flow from terrestrial areas to marine environments, not the other way around. So seabirds are incredibly important. And seabirds have been suggested as the most important vector or or transport mechanism for the movement of nutrients out of any animal on Earth. Tell us about this incredible island. Introduce us to that area you study. Yeah, so I work out on Lord Howe Island, which is located roughly halfway between New Zealand and Australia. It's a tropical island um, with roughly 300 residents living on it, and it's home to thousands of terrestrial birds as well as seabirds. And one of these species is the flesh-footed shearwater. You may know it as a mutton bird. These birds come to Lord Howe Island uh, and breed. So rather than being a surface nester, like, say, a, a gull, They uh, burrow into the ground and their burrows can be two to three metres long, which is 
incredible for such a small bird. Wow. I mean, it's incredible considering they dig these burrows with their feet. Um, <laughs> it's crazy, crazy to think. No kidding. Yeah, that is yeah. crazy. Um, these birds come to Lord Howe Island to breed. Then they fly back up to the Sea of Japan, so in the Northern Hemisphere, forage there and live there and then, yeah, come back to Lord Howe Island um, to breed. Now, I mentioned all the nutrients in bird guano. Do we have clues that the flesh-footed shearwater is fertilizing Lord Howe Island with all its guano? Absolutely, yeah. Um, the, so the vegetation structure in the shearwater colonies is predominantly palm species, um, and it's just, it's one species of palm called the Kentia palm. There's very few other species. It's pretty much you know 95% palm tree. And then if you walk to the edge of the colony and then step out of the colony, the, the vegetation structure changes almost immediately. All of a sudden you get a variety of um, shrubs and other tree species and other palm species. Wow. And, yeah, so it seems like there's this really intricate link between the shearwaters and the vegetation on Lord Howe Island. And that's where this idea that the shearwaters are bringing really beneficial nutrients to the island and these areas, these colonies where the shearwaters are, the vegetation needs the the nutrients from their guano to survive. So that's the connection. Yeah, that's that's the connection. The palm trees and the guano. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Uh, Jennifer, what are some other places where we might be able to notice this connection between seabirds and their ecosystems? Virtually everywhere we look, really, this is the fascinating thing about seabird colonies. Once we see this or we become aware of their ability to kind of drive their habitats or, or be what we call ecosystem engineers, which is quite a cool term, then then we'll start to recognize this pattern everywhere we look. And the vegetation that occurs where those seabirds nest uh, essentially evolves or adapts to the response of the birds being present. And so you get this really intimate relationship, as Megan said, between bird and tree, and only certain trees exist where the birds are. And in the case of the shearwaters and the mutton birds that we're studying on Lord Howe Island, they're also what we call turbating or, or turning over the soil as they dig their burrows over and over again and basically making a big mess of the place. And so that turning over the soil and that constant depositing of these nutrients really dictates what can grow there and what can't. There's a really great, although I suppose a little bit sad example from the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. It's probably one of the better ones that we know of where in the early 19th century, we introduced foxes as part of the pelt or the fur trade. And the foxes in very short order removed the seabirds um, basically ate them for lunch and dinner, um, and the seabirds were, were, were gone. And so what we noticed for the vegetation, the habitat structure on these Aleutian Islands in Alaska was that they very quickly transitioned from being kind of woody and shrubby and having trees and things to now those islands are grasslands. And so that was one of the most kind of marked or, or clearly demonstrated examples of if you remove seabirds from these habitats, those habitats just don't look the way they used to look anymore because they're not getting the things that they need to maintain those, the trees and other life. And Megan, 
So, I mean, part of my PhD is looking at how the shiwata guano links very closely to not just the kentia palms that I was talking about, but also to the soil and the soil invertebrates as well within these regions that the shiwaters breed. For the soil invertebrates, I'm studying a invasive species, which is the leopard slug, um, to see whether they also have uh, similar nutrient levels to, say, like the the guano that the shearwaters have deposited. Um, but this is this can be said for you know seabird colonies all around the world. It's not just the vegetation that the seabirds influence. It's it's the soil and it's the soil invertebrates. Um, in I can't remember the exact location, but there was an island somewhere where there were seabirds, and they compared it to an island without seabirds. And the island with seabirds, um, the iguanas were longer than the iguanas on the island without seabirds. So there are huge flow-on effects from having seabirds in a region compared to without seabirds. It's it's phenomenal. So that brings me to this question. We're talking so much about what we do know. Uh, Megan or Jennifer, what do we still need to know? Well, I'm just thinking of your your wonderful review paper that you just did, Megan, and it really pinpointed to us that there are, uh, I'll say a handful, maybe a dozen seabird species that Megan was able to identify that are uh, endangered or critically endangered. Some of those are known to have been quite heavily involved in the historical guano trade. So we know that there were significant quantities of guano in the past, so much so that our um, original human societies were based around harvesting of that guano and transporting it around the globe when using it as fertilizer and various kinds of things. Those seabird populations are now numerically far less abundant to the point where they've been listed as, you know, vulnerable or endangered. And when Megan was looking at what do we know about these species with regards to their guano and their population sizes now and various aspects, the answer was kind of not enough. Uh, So we've lost a lot of these birds. We've clearly have the potential to lose significant amounts of guano with that. And yet, simple things, very basic metrics like how much nutrients is actually in the guano of that species. So what exactly have we lost or what could we regain if we restore these vulnerable and endangered species? We couldn't really answer that question because basic measurements of the value of their guano just aren't available. Hmm. And Megan? (laughs) I was going to say a very similar thing um, in that I think it's really important to start studying the species that we could possibly lose. Megan, uh, I I understand that perhaps you can tell people how important seabirds are. Are you consulting on a video game about guano? (laughs) So this is just... um, I, I mean, when my when my review paper was published, I put it up on Twitter just to basically say, "Look, I've I've, I've written a paper. Um, please go and read it and and all of that." And then, um, I had someone comment on that post and said, "Oh, you know, we're making a board game about guano. Um, we would love to ask you some questions. P.S. This is not a joke." And I, <laughs> I didn't know whether to take this person seriously because. 
even though they said, P.S., it's not a joke, it sounded like a joke. I mean, who, who makes a board game about guano? Um, <laughs> and, and basically they're, they're making a game, a board game about the guano trade when guano was a, a hot commodity, basically, and um, in some instances it was valued more highly than gold. Um, anyway, so they're making a board game about this and um, they've asked me to be their scientific consultant which is super exciting. Wow. So, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, will you let us know when that game is out? Um, it's coming out next year. So I can't give away too many details um, because um, it's still in production. Okay. I get it. I get it. Hush, hush for now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have you back when it comes out, okay? Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you both for taking time to be with us today. Oh, thank you so much for having us. It's been an absolute joy. It was wonderful talking about poo all morning. any excuse megan grant a phd candidate at the university of tasmania and researcher at the adrift lab in australia and dr jennifer lavers senior lecturer in marine sciences also at the adrift lab we have to take a break and when we come back we're taking a trip back to the age of the dinosaurs with two of the folks behind the new show prehistoric planet stay with us at Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. <laughs> Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. If you're a big fan of dinosaurs like I am, you always want to know more. You can learn as much as you can about what they look like, how they behaved, but ultimately, you'll never be able to see them with your own eyes, of course. That's barring any real-life Jurassic Park situation, which you all know how well that goes. A new docuseries from BBC Studios tackles this impossible task, making dinosaurs nobody has seen as realistic as possible. We even see T-Rex swim, velociraptors hunt, and titanosaurs stop around the desert. So how did the team behind the show accomplish all of this? Let's ask them. Joining me now to talk about Prehistoric Planet, streaming on Apple TV+, Plus, are Tim Walker, producer for Prehistoric Planet, and Darren Nash, lead science consultant for the show, both based in Bristol, UK. Welcome to Science Friday. Hi, Ira. Really great to be here. We're very excited to share Prehistoric Planet with you and, and the whole of the world. Yeah, great to be here. Nice to have both of you. Uh, the, the BBC docuseries Walking with Dinosaurs from the 90s was a formative dinosaur media for many people. You know, Prehistoric Planet feels in many ways like a, uh, a spiritual successor to that, Tim. What's different about this series? Well, Ira, I mean, Walking with Dinosaurs was one of the most fantastic TV shows. And, and personally, I lapped it up and I know a lot of the world did. Now, we've taken the last 25 years of, of scientific interpretation of the fossil record and comparative biology, looking at how modern animals work and and behave and looking at what we can glean from uh, what we know about the past. And we've created a brand new definitive guide to dinosaurs. So we're walking with dinosaurs was over 20 years ago, I think. You know, we're hoping that Prehistoric Planet will 
bring a whole new generation of potential paleontologists and, and filmmakers to our side. We're showing the dinosaurs and the other animals that lived alongside them at the end of the Cretaceous in a brand new light. Our interpretation of, of how they looked, you know, what they physically looked like is now very different uh, to the last 20 years and what people have got very used to from walking with dinosaurs and from other TV shows and movies. And a key aspect of Prehistoric Planet is the behaviours we show. We want people to fall in love with the Cretaceous period, with dinosaurs generally, and realise that dinosaurs weren't monsters. They were magnificent and they were majestic. And of course, there are, uh, Darren, a lot of feathers on your dinosaurs in, in the show. Speaking of how they look like, was, was that controversial? It's true. So many of our animals are beautifully feathered. Some of them don't just have feathers. Some of them have you know, hair-like filaments covering their bodies. And it's almost surprising, uh, certainly to me as a, as a specialist, as a paleontologist specializing on dinosaurs, that this is seen as an, a surprising new thing. We have known since, definitely since the mid-1990s, that extinct dinosaurs of many kinds had feathered bodies. This was It's an idea that goes back even further than that. You know, as far back as the 1960s, people had put this idea forward for very good reason, mostly based on the strong affinity between birds and bird-like non-bird dinosaurs, velociraptor-type dinosaurs. And today, you know, we've got literally thousands of fossils, mostly from China, that confirm that predatory dinosaurs and members of some other dinosaur groups looked like this. So the fact that it was discovered in the 1990s, it's not, it's not a new idea. I think the public has kind of been misled by certain interpretations of dinosaurs that haven't portrayed them accurately. Of course, we have done everything to be scientifically accurate in Prehistoric Planet. You're seeing this new view of dinosaurs and the other animals of their time um, because we wanted to accurately reflect the science as up to the minute as we could. And of course, uh, you did that by showing dinosaurs that have uh, muscles and skin. And tell us, Darren, walk us through how you brought a dinosaur to life. And let's use one of the show's stars, T-Rex, as an example. You're bringing a dinosaur to life, creating a fully realized, you know, photo real CG image of this animal is a very long, intensive collaboration involving, you know, tens of different people. So... Our starting point, obviously, is the fossils and what we understand about the bones and how they actually go together, what the skeleton would look like. So we essentially start with a skeletal reconstruction, which has been compiled by a specialist. Now, we know from what we understand about marks on bones and the anatomy of living animals got pretty good evidence for what the tissue on top of the musculature was like. Bringing the actual animal to life then incorporates a ton of discussion about how big you think the muscles were, how much jiggle there was in the animal's tissues, the range of movements in its joints, and you know how much its knees and ankles and bend, how much, how wide its its jaws could open. We used all of the scientific data that exists, combined it with a whole load of um, lines of evidence to do with the rules, air quotes around rules that exist in nature about you know which animals have which color schemes which patterns work best for animals according to their lifestyle and habitat and we incorporated all of this uh, up-to-date thinking on what the integument the stuff on the outside 
of the body was like. We know for sure that loads of dinosaurs had scaly skin on much or, or all of their bodies. But of course, we have this evidence now for feathers and filaments and spikes and other structures, which we incorporated as well. So it's a really complicated, multi-stranded collaboration involving getting the bones right, getting the soft tissues right, coming up with rules about colors and patterns according to lifestyle and habitat, and incorporating all this brand new stuff about you know the external covering of the animal and then actually getting the thing to move around and walk that again is a collaboration between what we understand about biomechanics you know there's a huge amount of science done on on how joints and muscles move what the range of motions like combining that with the the skill and experience of our team behind the the cg building because they have to build in gravity and movement to the animals which it is a scientifically led thing, but it's also something that's in a way intuitive. They have developed this phenomenal understanding of, you know, how do you make an animal that weighs 10 tons, thinking of, you know, a really big T-Rex, how do you make that look like an animal that weighs 10 tons when you're designing it on a computer? It's quite incredible, the animation. Um, I, I, I think you also have put in some real surprising moments in it. And I think one of them for me, and probably for the audience, is that you open one of your episodes with a with T-Rex swimming. I think a swimming T-Rex is going to surprise a lot of Jurassic Park fans. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the things that we've been aiming for is is to bring an element of surprise um to to the viewers. I think people do have an expectation that that dinosaurs are going to run around all the time and and fight. Now, of course, that does happen in the natural world, but key to the success of prehistoric planet is the, the depiction of dinosaurs as animals just like a bear or a tiger or a lion if you film these things for real they spend a lot of time doing very little then they've got to eat they've got to procreate repeat you know on a yearly basis and so we've approached the storytelling as if we'd been out in the field filming the, the dinosaurs for real and when you do that you would normally spend months and months in the field filming animals because as i say they do very little a lot of the time however what they do display is unusual aspects of behavior that until it's been filmed before has never been seen and so we've taken that approach we've looked at what evidence we have out there to create our stories and there's great evidence that that, that theropod dinosaurs swam we know that t-rex had a pneumatic skeleton it had a lot of air in its in its skeleton it would have sat comfortably in the water body and the trace fossils that have been found in many places show that theropod feet have scraped along the bottom of uh, rivers and lakes and the sediments on the bottom there and left the, the remains of a swimming motion. Uh, we put those elements together to tell a fantastic story, which will surprise and hopefully delight the viewers as much as it has done us. You know, watching the show, there are times where the dinosaurs seem to show emotion. They have personalities, the babies are especially very cute and charismatic. Tim, how did you balance keeping the animation realistic and not making it too cartoony? It's a big challenge, you know, making the animation realistic and, and not too cartoony. We spent a lot of time, I mean a lot of time, working on this, getting the nuance of movement of an animal right, then combining that with the storytelling that we've developed at the BBC's Natural History Unit. If you watch the type of things that we've made in the past, you can see a certain style to the storytelling, which does encourage an emotional attachment with a character. And 
combining that with the expertise of our animation supervisors, in particular Andy Jones, who had previously worked on Lion King and Jungle Book, and the incredible team at MPC, uh, and that is absolutely key in maintaining the the aesthetic of this being a docu-series and not just a fantastic movie. Yeah. Uh, speaking of a docu-series, Prehistoric Planet is narrated by the inimitable Sir David Attenborough, who, of course, is known for his uh, documentary narrations about nature. How did he take to this? Was it odd to craft scripting around footage that was computer animated where he's used to being out in the wild with them, Tim? Well, working with David Attenborough is an absolute delight. And, and it gives us the final piece of the cake, if you like, you know, having got the stories the way we want them, having got the animation and the the the, the look and feel of the dinosaurs and the other creatures, how we want them. Getting David's endorsement was the final cherry on the top there. And and we spent a lot of time both researching the scientific side of things and then getting the material right before we showed it. And it was a tense moment. You know, we can't deny it because he's done everything when it comes to telling stories about the natural world. And we waited until things were very, very far advanced in terms of the development of the, of the storylines and the, the final animation. And when we showed him, he turned and he said, I don't think you could have done it any better, which you know, is a real seal of approval. And from that moment, he was on board. Right, right. Uh, Darren, how did you choose from so many dinosaurs which ones to feature on the show? Right from the start, we decided that we were only going to focus on one particular short section of the so-called age of dinosaurs. So in particular, we wanted to focus on what's called the late Cretaceous. The Cretaceous is the last major chunk of the, the so-called age of dinosaurs. And we focused on one six million year section of the last part of the late Cretaceous called the Maastrichtian. So you're only seeing animals from the Maastrichtian, the very last part of the Cretaceous. It's the final days of the dinosaurs, if you like. But we're still talking about a long time. Six million years is, is a considerable uh, time. Uh, lots of things happening in that time. The reason we chose the Maastrichtian was partly because it contains the paleontological superstars that you know everyone knows their household names so tyrannosaurus rex and triceratops for example are maastrichtian dinosaurs but um doubling up on this is the fact that the uh, fossil record of the maastrichtian is essentially the best for the whole age of dinosaurs the uh, fossil uh, beds the beds that bear fossils are more abundant you know globally and they yield a greater diversity in terms of animals and also plant fossils, information on environments, that kind of thing, than, again, almost any other part of the Mesozoic. This is partly a consequence of the fact that it's the youngest part of the age of dinosaurs. So it's the, the bit with the best fossils. We really wanted to focus on the idea that life at this time was phenomenally diverse, abundant, incredibly rich. There were these um, there were all these amazing dinosaurs, some of which, as I've said, are household names, others of which, you know, nobody apart from specialists have really, you know, heard about. And they live in a world that we understand pretty well relative to other sections of geological time. So if you want to start with bringing a, a very dynamic, new, exciting view of the age of dinosaurs to the public, you virtually always start with the Maastrichtian. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. In case you're just joining us, we're talking with Tim Walker and Darren Naish about the upcoming Apple TV Plus show, Prehistoric Planet. Yeah, and throughout the years, depictions of dinosaurs have been pretty drab, you know, mostly grays and browns, but 
There's quite a lot of color in the show's dinos. How were the choices made there, Darren? So conventional reconstructions of dinosaurs, which do portray them as not particularly attractive animals, um, often quite sort of dragony in appearance, you know, jagged teeth right, out of right. the place and lumpy, bumpy skin. And, and yeah, as you say, fairly dull animals. This is a, a very, very out of date view of the animals, which isn't in keeping at all with our current understanding. So it's quite distressing to a specialist like me that that, that stereotype is is still being perpetuated, even at this point in history. It's very strange. We know for a whole bunch of reasons that dinosaurs were, in fact, almost the opposite of this. They were flamboyant, visually oriented, very likely colorful dinosaurs. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm sure that many species were pretty dull. You know, they would have been grays and browns, and, and maybe some of them weren't particularly attractive to us. But we know that dinosaurs had enormous eyes. They have the biggest eyeballs of any terrestrial animals from the whole of history. The parts of their brains devoted to processing information from the eyes are particularly big and well-developed. They're closely related to birds. Birds are living dinosaurs. So what goes for birds often goes for extinct dinosaurs as well. So you think of in the bird world today, birds are often colorful. They do mating dances and, you know, displays, wiggling their tails and all this kind of stuff. That kind of thing applies to dinosaurs, uh, non-bird dinosaurs too. So the idea that you should take away from prehistoric planet is that dinosaurs would have been flamboyant, attractive, often colorful animals. It's, it's not a coincidence. You think about all these remarkable body shapes we have in all the dinosaur groups. Again and again, we see the evolution and elaboration of head crests, plates on the back, spikes, spines, giant dorsal sails, very peculiar anatomical structures. I think it shows that this group of animals, almost more than any other group of animals in the history of life, are visually flamboyant, doing displays, using color, using body language, sending signals to other members of their species and to the members of other species. And this is very much the modern view of these animals. It's what you're going to see portrayed in our sequences. It was fascinating to watch. Uh, Tim, when Walking with Dinosaurs came out, we were in the late, what, 1990s, and there was this huge dinomania. Jurassic Park was one of the biggest movies ever. You had dinosaur toys. Things were huge with kids. And now, 20 years later, Prehistoric Planet is coming out. We've got a new Jurassic World movie coming out soon. Are we in a new age of dinomania? I think we are in a new age of dinomania. And, and for me, you know, Bring it on. If we can have prehistoric planet and we can have Jurassic Park at the same time, the more people we can get excited and passionate about what we've been spending the last three and a half years doing, well, just fabulous, you know? That's great. And we look forward to it. I want to thank both of you for taking time to be with us today and good luck. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure. Don't forget to watch Prehistoric Planet on Apple TV Plus streaming from May 23rd. Tim Walker, producer for Prehistoric Planet, and Darren Nash, lead science consultant for the show, both based in Bristol, UK. And if you can't get enough of dinosaurs, you can join our Science Friday book club. We're reading Riley Black's book, The Last Days of the Dinosaurs. Find out how to join at sciencefriday.com slash book club. We have to take a break, and when we come back, drought conditions in the Great Plains are causing farmers to worry about what this year's growing season has in store. Stay with us. Hey there, folks. Just a reminder that Science Friday depends on donations from our audience, and that means you. 
You help fund the radio show each week, plain and simple. So if you find value in what we do, please go to sciencefriday.com support and give what you can. Any amount makes a difference. And thanks. While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. And now it's time to check in on the state of science. This is KER St. Louis Public Radio Iowa Public Radio News. Local science stories of national significance. In recent years, there's been a lot of attention paid to ever drier conditions in the western U.S. Less snow, less rain, increased chance of wildfire. But a changing climate isn't only affecting the West Coast. The Great Plains are seeing increasing dryness also. And with that comes threats to agriculture, loss of vital topsoil, and increased risks of fires. Elizabeth Rembert is a reporter for Nebraska Public Media and Harvest Public Media based in Lincoln. Welcome to Science Friday, Elizabeth. Hi, Ira. It's so great to be here. Nice to have you. I know that you've been reporting on that dryness, and it's part of the Great Plains weather cycle, but this year it's even worse. Just how bad is it? Yes, it is a bad year. So dryness is a part of life in the Great Plains. Like you said, it's a part of the natural cycle. Um, Climatologists say that we're always operating on a spectrum where extreme wetness is at one end and extreme dryness is at the other. And the amount of snow or rain that you get throughout a year and the temperatures factor in to put you somewhere on that spectrum. But this year, starting in about October, the region didn't get enough snow or rain to get that good moisture into the soil. So would you call it a drought at this point? Yes. um, Brian Fuchs, a climatologist with the National Drought Mitigation Center, said that those dry conditions in the winter, they weren't a surprise, but... Then they continued building to establish a deep drought that we're seeing now. We had a tremendously dry winter through much of the plains, and that was not unexpected, but we really didn't understand last fall what the extent of that dryness was going to be. Brian Fuchs said that it's the worst drought year since 2012, and in 2012, the Great Plains region saw more than $35 billion in losses because of that drought. Wow, that's 10 years ago. And and that dryness has caused wildfires, right? Yes. Um, the dryness of the soil hasn't allowed the new green uh, moist growth to get out of the ground. And so there's a lot of dry, dead grass out there. And many states in the Great Plains are also seeing extremely high, intense winds. Oklahoma clocked its windiest April since 1994. And those are the perfect conditions for wildfires, that dryness, the windiness. And in Nebraska, tens of thousands of acres have burned, and two fire chiefs have actually lost their lives fighting those blazes. Oh, that's that's terrible. Now, I know what from looking at farms, sometimes they have bales of hay out there, right, uh, on the fields. Do they catch fire also? 
Yes, a colleague of mine spoke to one volunteer firefighter, and he remembered a scene going up to help fight a fire that was coming to a house, and he drove up a road, and on both sides of the road, there were bales of hay, and every single one of those hay bales was on fire. So farmers and ranchers are losing those hay bales, but then they're also losing just the grassland. And that's where they put their cattle out to eat the grass. That's where they get their food. And if they don't have that grassland, then they don't have enough food for their cattle. And that leads ranchers to sell off cattle before they plant, probably for a lower price. When my colleague spoke to that same farmer, he talked about how he's been fighting the blazes, but then also helping farmers and ranchers with the aftermath by organizing hay donations for farmers who need help. So they lost their pasture ground. They lost their bales that were in the in the yards and in the in the ranches. Um, all of it's gone. It, it's hard to understand that. But for those farmers, they lost their entire inventory of of feed. Wow, that's tough to hear. And I imagine a lot of those farmers have been in this business for years, right? They they've never seen anything like this, at least for a decade. Yeah, I spoke to one farmer who said that this was the driest spring that he's ever seen in his nearly 40 years of farming. And that even beats 2012. Um, When he was putting seeds in the ground a few weeks back, he said that this was the least optimistic that he'd ever felt putting, putting seeds into the ground. You reported that dryness isn't new for the plains. We talked about that. And farmers have learned some tricks to deal with it. Tell us what what they are. Yeah, drought-resistant crops have gained a lot of traction in the region, especially since the 2012 drought when farmers were hit with that extreme dryness. Um, Drought-resistant crops are seeds that have been bred to thrive even when the rains don't come. Um, Other conservation practices can also be helpful to protect soil from erosion by those extremely high, intense winds. Farmers will reduce the amount that they till, which means that they're not plowing over the soil as much. Um, And then sometimes they'll also plant crops between the growing seasons, and that helps keep the soil down as well. Uh, One farmer that I spoke to said that if he wasn't doing those conservation practices, he thought that if you put a black and white filter on a picture of his farm, it would look like something out of the 1930s Dust Bowl. Wow. Grapes of wrath back again. Is it is it getting to that point? There have been some recent rains in this region, which have been helpful. But remember what Brian Fuchs said, that climatologist, that these conditions have been building since October. So even a few recent rains isn't enough to completely satisfy that deep rain deficit that the region is facing. Wow. As you say, farmers saying this is uh, the worst that they can remember. Are, Are they doing anything differently this time compared to previous years? One farmer in Nebraska said that this season he did something that he has never done before, which is he turned on his irrigation system even before he put seeds into the ground, before he went through the planting process. Um, Other farmers might also be increasing their crop insurance, uh, which guarantees some payment if the crops don't come up. Is this true of the whole state? I mean, is the whole state under these kinds of conditions? Most of the state, yes. It gets better the further east that you go. And it's actually, it's kind of an interesting um, situation right now because 
Once you cross the Missouri River into Iowa, Missouri, Illinois, those farmers are actually complaining that they're getting too much moisture. Their uh, no, their really? fields are too yeah they're too soaked um, and they haven't been able to get out into the fields planting. So it's like I said, the two extremes. One wow. across the Missouri River, you're at one end. You're at a completely different on, on the western side of the state. This climate change is a crazy thing. These farmers and ranchers' lives and their homes and their incomes are, are, are all dependent, right, on the weather. I imagine that's incredibly stressful to them as you're, as you're talking to them. How are they holding up? Yeah, a lot of people say that drought is probably the most stressful thing that a farmer or rancher can go through. I mean, these are people who stay in this profession because they love the process of being in the soil, putting a plant in, and then maybe it's a, a corn seed. They're putting a corn seed in and then watching it grow into the beautiful green stalk and then that picture-perfect yellow cob that we all picture. So it can be really challenging if you do that investment and then you go out into your fields and you see patches where the plant hasn't even come up, or you see patches of those dry, dead plants. But farmers and ranchers are also practical, and they say that their whole job is about these variables and adapting to the variables. So I think that they're feeling a little bit discouraged, but they are still praying for rain and ready to make changes if they need to. Yeah, because I would imagine they can expect more of the same in the future, and they have to get used to that and adapt. Yeah, scientists say that some factors of climate change, like higher temperatures, which can evaporate moisture more quickly, or we're seeing long spells of dryness offset by less frequent but more intense rainfalls, those types of factors can push dryness into drought. And so it is a gradual change, and I think farmers are always watching their fields and the weather conditions, and they're ready to adapt Um, Maybe they're expecting to use more drought-resistant crops or conservation practices in the future to adapt to those changing conditions. All right. Thank you very much for taking time to be with us today. Thank you so much for the time. Elizabeth Rembert is a reporter for Nebraska Public Media and Harvest Public Media based in Lincoln. And you can read her reporting on this topic on her website, sciencefriday.com slash dry plains. This is Science Friday from WNYC Studios. The impact of climate change and drought on the nation's food system is a big worry, not just to farmers, but to all of us. What will we do to feed ourselves on a warming planet? Last week, we talked about how restaurants are serving up a much different seafood menu than they did even a decade ago. And with rising water temperatures, those changes are expected to continue into the future. So what other foods might better be suited for a warming planet? Anna Gibbs, a reporter at Science News that's based in Washington, D.C., wrote about six foods that might not be part of your diet now, but might be in the future. Welcome, Anna. It's great to be here. Thanks so much for having me. You're welcome. We talked last week about how climate change is affecting the seafood that lands on our dinner plates. But obviously, more than just seafood is impacted. How else is the food we love at risk? Yeah, so climate change is already affecting the food that we grow, right? We're already seeing more extreme weather events, temperatures getting hotter. We're seeing higher variation in rainfall, so both droughts and floods. And the problem is that on top of that, we have put all of our eggs into a really small number of baskets when it comes to the food that we're eating. 
the world population relies on getting 80% of their energy intake from just 13 crops. And so if you think about all the different things that you eat, just 13 of those are really prominent. Wow. Yeah. And 50% of our calorie intake comes from just three crops, which is wheat, rice, and maize. So experts are worried because relying on such a small number of options is really risky. All right. I, I know that you came up then with a list of six foods that could become more popular as the climate changes. Let's go through them. First, we have a millet. Uh, it's a type of ancient grain. It's a great source of carbs. It can be made into a lot of different things, including beer. And it's already a staple crop in many countries around the world. Um, then we have the Bambara groundnut. It's a lesser well-known crop. Uh, it's a type of legume sort of like soybeans. It's a good source of protein. Um, and that one's native to sub-Saharan Africa. Then I had to get some seafood on the list. So we had mussels. Studies show that seafood will become a bigger part of our diets in the future. And mussels are cool because they can be farmed in the ocean with low inputs. The problem with mussels is that they're threatened by ocean acidification. And so that's why we also added kelp to the list. You can grow mussels with kelp, and that's really beneficial for the mussels. And then kelp is just awesome because it sucks a lot of carbon out of the air. It's kind of like having a forest underwater. So that's a really powerful duo. Then we have the enset. It's a funky plant grown primarily in Ethiopia. It's called the false banana because it looks like a banana tree, but you can't actually eat its fruit. You eat its starchy stem. Um, and it's also called the tree against hunger because you can harvest it year round. The last one on the list is cassava. Um, it's a starchy root vegetable from South America, good source of carbs. But like millet, it's already grown around the world. Um, so it's a staple crop. It's one of the top 13 crops that I mentioned earlier. Um, and you may think that you haven't tried cassava before. I thought that I hadn't, but I actually learned that it's found in the tapioca balls in bubble tea. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Oh, and I actually, you know, used to feed millet to my parakeets. Right. Someone else told me that too. <laughs> yeah. But I uh, have I had a vegetarian friend of mine, and uh, a few few years ago, a few decades ago, he said you got to try this thing called millet because he wasn't eating any wheat products either. He was allergic to wheat. And it was, it's delicious. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a kind of thing you want to put sauce on it. That's great. And they are gluten-free, which is a really awesome alternative. Yeah. Now tell me how you chose these. Yeah. So after talking with some food experts, it became clear pretty quickly that the whole exercise of putting together a list was in and of itself antithetical to the key takeaway that I was hearing from these scientists which was that we shouldn't really be making a short list, right? We should be making a really, really long list. We should be adding to the list. So having to choose just six was challenging. Um, but I had four basic criteria that all of the foods on this list check off. So the first thing was obviously their resilience, so their ability to live in the changing climate. The, the second one is their nutritional quality. So just inherently, are they nutritious? But also, how will that nutritional makeup be affected by climate change? So one concern with higher levels of carbon dioxide is that it can actually make some crops less nutritious, hmm. which is obviously a problem going forward. And there's some crops that grow better in higher CO2 than others. So that's being studied right now. Um, and then the third criteria, is it sustainable? Is it environmentally friendly? We don't want to be making a worse future for our food while we're investing in these crops. Uh, right. And then the final consideration was, is this food consumer friendly? Will people buy it? Um, which is really important. Yeah. Yeah. And, and 
Not only is it important, but can we find these things in the U.S.? I mean, where are you going to get a Bambra groundnut? I mean, there's cassava I have seen around the specialty food stores, but a Bambra groundnut, not so much. Right, right. And, you know, maybe someday, though, and that's the hope is that someday you might actually find the Bambara groundnut as a dairy alternative at your local Starbucks. Um, there's a company that's making Bam Nut Milk is what it's called. And it's a dairy-free alternative, just like soy milk or almond milk or oat milk. Um, so, you know, hopefully someday it'll get to that point. Now, I know that millet is out there because I've, I've eaten it, but I'm not... Do people know about it? Will they know about it now that we're talking about it? Yeah, so that's a great question because the UN actually declared next year to be the International Year of Millets. I'm not sure if you've wow. heard of that distinction before. <laughs> no, but, I haven't. <laughs> um, so they gave quinoa that honor back in 2013. And we all saw how that turned out. I mean, everyone's into quinoa these days. So hopefully a similar fate will come to the millet. Hmm. And before we go, Anna, what can we do at home or during our grocery trips to diversify what we eat? Yeah, so I think the takeaway for consumers is to be intentional about trying new things, um, eating a range of different items, even looking for diversity within a particular type of food. Like think how apples have lots of varieties. That's great because it increases resilience, right? We're putting our eggs in more baskets. Um, if one variety isn't cut out for certain conditions, another will probably make it. Whereas a crop like bananas, there's a lots of varieties, but we tend to really just buy one at the stores. So looking for diversity where you see it, be willing to try new things on the shelf, um, be open to these menu changes that are going to happen. And also we do hold a lot of power as consumers to bring some of these more sustainable options to the forefront. So I'm really curious to see if kelp will someday take off like quinoa did. Thank you for taking time to be with us today. Thanks so much, Ira. Anna Gibbs, a reporter at Washington-based Science News. And that's about it for this week. If you missed any part of the program or you would like to hear it again, of course, you can subscribe to our podcasts or ask your smart speaker to play Science Friday. And in light of a likely overturn of Roe versus Wade, we'll be continuing our special coverage of the science of reproductive health and abortion access in the coming weeks. And we'd like to know what questions you'd like us to answer. Share your questions with us on the SciFry Vox Pop app. That's the SciFry Vox Pop app wherever you get your apps. We'll see you next week. I'm Ira Flato.